Amen, amen. Uh, but anyway, we're continuing to walk through the book of Acts. Uh, we have come to chapter 17 here, and we're talking about church, church life uh, 101. What comes to mind when you think about church life? And of course, depending on where you are, you know, that answer will change. Uh, for me, as I was looking back, I thought about, you know, growing up, um, grew up in a church not just a, a few blocks from here, and um, I can remember being bored to death, is what I remember uh, at that church. Everything from, you know, the songs to the service uh, was boring to me. I remember the, the, the seeming monotony uh, of the service. I remember how uh, predictable everything was. Uh, based on who got up during the service, you knew exactly what they were going to say, when they were going to say it, how they were going to say it. Um, from the deacons who would open the service with devotion to, you know, the time that they stood up for the offering and uh, even down to knowing when church was about over and as a kid, that's really important because it seems to last forever uh, as a kid sitting in uh, a traditional service. And But you knew about five to ten minutes you'd be done because the last five to ten minutes of the sermon were the same Sunday in and Sunday out. Um, now looking back, not a stab at it then, because looking back, um, I was young, I wasn't paying attention. He was actually preaching the gospel in his clothes every Sunday. So that's why it was the same Sunday in and Sunday out. But as a kid, I, I, I didn't catch that. And so for me, it was just the same and it was boring. I remember knowing that it was time to quote unquote join the church because either your parents or some other adult would come down and tell you, hey, go sit in the chair. Everybody knows the chair, right? This one single chair that they would sit out at the front of the church in the middle aisle after the sermon during the invitation. They always only set out one chair. And if somebody was to walk the aisle and they sit in that one chair, a deacon would come and they would sit out one more chair. I don't know why it was always one, but it was always just one chair. I remember, at least for me, at that time, at that church, there was no presentation of the gospel uh, to that person in that chair. Um, no one walked through scripture. There was no question as to whether or not you believed in this Jesus or understood the purpose of the baptism that they were now signing you up for. Because for anybody under 18 who came and sat in that chair, you were automatically a candidate for baptism. I remember that anything dealing with the church was always at the church. I remember people only talking about church at the church. And I remember everyone at the church looked like me. Now, based on my experience coming up, church life was limited. It was limited in the sense that those who were old enough to participate in its worship, I was limited to the four walls of the church in activity, behavior, and in message. And it was limited to a particular group of people. Based on my experience in the early years, the primary function of church life was to have church. Because after service ended and people left there, there was no more talk about the gospel, no more talk about the church. 
As we look at our text this morning, we'll see something vastly different. We'll get a vastly different view of church life. What we see in Paul and others in the book of Acts is a purposeful cycle of reach, teach, rest, and repeat. We see them intentionally establishing contact with others and not just people who look like them. We see them expounding or explaining the scriptures and sharing the gospel and pointing people to Jesus wherever they went. We see them getting different responses from people as they shared the gospel, but they trusted Jesus with the results and they kept going. We see them leaving whatever place they were in, regardless of the outcome, regardless of how they were treated, and they had some tough goals. We see them leaving to go through it over and over again in another area with another people with the same message, that Jesus is the Christ. In Matthew 28, we have a very familiar text uh, affectionately called the Great Commission. This text points us to our primary function as a church. It says, uh, starting in verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The primary purpose of church life is to make disciples. Our function as the witnesses Christ called us to be, according to Acts 1 and 8, is to intentionally engage people for the express purpose of sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel and resting in the results and repeating that function over and over again for the glory of God until he calls us home or until Christ returns. This has been the cycle of Paul's life in Christ, and I say his life in Christ because if you're familiar with Paul, familiar with the Bible, his life before Jesus looked very differently. He had a form of godliness. He had a very impressive, uh, quote-unquote, churchy resume. We see that resume in uh, uh, Philippians. It says here, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is Paul, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Based on Paul's experience before Christ, his church life included persecuting the church. He approved of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Scripture telling us in 8.1 that he approved of his execution. 8.3 telling us that he was ravaging the church and entering from house to house, dragging out men and women and committing them to prison. But Paul had an experience with Christ that drastically changed who he was and changed his view of church life. 
This experience is captured for us in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 19. We won't go into it, uh, but if you're unfamiliar with it, you can read it. And uh, also, Pastor Brian shared a message on Paul's conversion. Uh, Acts chapter 9 is listed on our website or in the app. You can go back and listen to it. So I want to really focus on our hearts on what Paul's life looked like after his conversion, because we're talking about church life. Amen? So Paul goes to Damascus, and now he's not going with the intention of, of imprisoning believers because he had an experience on that road to Damascus. He's going to Damascus now blind and in search of a man named Ananias in obedience to the, Jew, the, the Jesus, excuse me, that he was persecuting. Scripture tells us for three days he went without sight, he went without food, and he went without water. And in that same time, Ananias receives a vision from the Lord in which he's instructed to rise and go to a street called Straight, and there he would find a man of Tarsus called Saul. Now, Ananias is not without reservation when he gets this vision and gets this instruction because he's familiar with Paul's reputation. He knows who the man is. But in obedience, in obedience to Jesus, he goes and he uh, uh, finds this Saul in Damascus and he lays hands on him and he says this, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that's verse 17 of Acts chapter 9. Here's verse 20 through 22. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of whose of those who called upon his name. And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now Paul was in the church prior to his experience with Christ. Amen? Not only was he in the church, but he had status in the church. He was a Pharisee, but his experience with Jesus changed how he viewed church life. Have we had an experience with Jesus? And if we have, how has it changed our view of church life? Based on Paul's experience with Jesus, his church life went from persecution to proclamation. Verse 20 says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. I can remember as a, as a young man getting saved and, and I had that same fire. Immediately I went from, 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 from one who was sitting in church bored to one who wanted to tell any and everybody that I could meet about this Jesus. I was a 16-year-old kid hanging out in the mall with all my other friends, walking with my Bible in my hand. Yep. So an experience with Jesus should change us, and it should change how we view church life. And this would be Paul's life for the rest of his life. Reach, teach, rest, and repeat. Reach, he established a point of contact with people. Teach. Explain the scriptures to people. Rest. 
Expect different results from people, but trust Jesus with the results. Repeat. Inquire, inquire to God about your next assignment. As we come to chapter 17 of Acts, Paul and Silas have left Philippi and now found themselves in Thessalonica. Uh, the capital city of Macedonia, some 100 miles southwest of Philippi. Thessalonica had a population of approximately 200,000, so a pretty big place. Major port city and a center for business, much like Corinth. And so they also had a diverse group of people in the city. If you recall from Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas intended to make this journey Paul's heart was uh, uh, to return to the cities where they had previously preached the gospel and to look in on the brothers and sisters that were there. On last Sunday, Pastor Brian shared a little bit about the sharp disagreement that they had and uh, going uh, before uh, they went to take the journey. And so going into Acts 16, the names changed from Paul and Barnabas to Paul and Silas, but it kind of helps us frame the first couple of verses in 17 because they went with the purpose to encourage the brothers and sisters there. Acts 17 verses 1 and 2 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three days, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul comes into an area and passes two cities to reach Thessalonica where there was a synagogue. Paul had established a, a custom throughout his ministry of preaching first to the Gen Jews, rather, and then to the Gentiles. And scholars believe this is why he passed through the first two cities, inferring that there were no synagogues there. And so if you're preaching first to the Jews, you've got to find where the Jews are. Amen. Remember in the early church life, much of in early church, in the early church, much of church life still revolved around the temple. And so if you're looking to make connections with the people to share the gospel, you have to go where the people are. And that's our first point. In order to reach the people with the gospel, you have to go where the people are. Reach. Unlike the early church, our lives are centered, they're not centered around the temple, rather. They're centered around us. Our jobs, our families, our activities, our comforts. It would be easy to go all day or all week or even longer and not really have any meaningful contact with anyone outside of your circle if that was your preference. And our culture doesn't help. Anything or almost anything uh, has been designed to remove our interactions with people. How many stand in the, 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 the line at the theaters to buy tickets now? I don't. I buy them before I even get there. I know where I'm going to be seated before I even get there. There's an app for that. Don't want to stand in line at the grocery store? We got self-checkout. Don't want to go in the grocery store? We got you. There's click list. You can just pull up and they'll come out and put the groceries in your car. Don't want to grocery, go to the grocery store at all? They're now doing delivery, so they'll bring them to your house. We don't even have to get up to answer our doors anymore, thanks to Ring. 
You can see who it is and choose not to answer or let them in the house without even getting up. Bookstores, clothing stores, others are going out of business or at least closing their brick and mortar stores because the majority of their customers prefer to shop from the comforts of their home or their phones. Our schedules, our culture, and our comforts are teaching us to avoid people. An article published last year by, and I'm going to butcher this name, Septarshi Pal. I know that's wrong. Uh, entitled The Value of Connections in the Information Age, shares this. Online social networks allows us to engage large groups of people. Although the world is now connected more than ever, the value of these connections is worth questioning. There are social media users with millions of online friends. What, warrant, what then warrants is whether we are less lonely today in the information age than we were before the advent of the Internet. The article goes on to say it can be argued that most social media users have superficial relationships because of the way online uh, networks are designed and used. We're built for relationships. Christ said even in his word uh, in Genesis, it's not good that man should be alone. Jesus prays in, in John's gospel, you know, Lord, make them one even as you and the Father are one. We're built for relationships. And yet sometimes we take every opportunity to avoid being relational. Hebrews 10, 23 and 5 encourages us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Listen, and let us consider, nope, let us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Here it is, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Considering the primary function of church life is to make disciples, how do we make disciples if we avoid people? Romans 10, 11 through 14 says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to reach People, you have to go where people are. Verse 2, back in Acts 17, and Paul went in, as was his custom. He went to where the people were. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul makes contact and immediately begins his process of making disciples. After you've established contact with people, you're charged to teach. Teach people by explaining the scriptures to them. 
Note the text says three Sabbath days. This was uh, more likely referring to his time just at the Sabbath. Again, it was a, his custom to preach first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Some commentaries say their time in Thessalonica was probably four to six months. Uh, nobody seems to know exactly for sure, but it was long enough for him to receive two care packages from the church at Philippi. That's in Philippians 4, uh, 14 through 16. Paul's approach to ministry here serves kind of as a, a blueprint for us for making disciples. So if you say, oh, I really don't know how to make disciples, what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us a peek. First, he reasoned with them, the scripture says. This is just conversation. You don't, feel, you don't have to feel as if, you know, the first time you meet somebody, you got to crack the scriptures open and, and, and give them a 45-minute Brian Crawford. Amen? This is just asking and answering questions. If there are cultural differences that you need to be aware of, this is where you learn it. If there's brokenness that you lean into, this is where you find out about it. If there's bad theology that you're going to have to walk them through the scriptures regarding, this is where you learn about it. So not only are you building relationships through this time and, 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 and by that, earning the trust and permission to speak into their lives, but this is the springboard for your apologetics. How do you build and present your case for Christ without knowing what someone thinks about Christ and how they got there? Then he explains, Scripture says, this is simply opening the text and reading scripture and making sure that they understand what's being said. The goal here is clarity, not belief. Again, Romans says, how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? We simply want the message to get it out simply and with clarity. Corinthians says, we sow, well, one sows, one waters, God gives growth. So who's on the hook for the believing part? God is. We just want to share the message. Then he proved, the scripture says. This simply means that Paul used scripture to show proof for his case for Christ as the Messiah. He was connecting scripture to what they already knew to be true, much like we would connect brokenness uh, or scripture to brokenness in the world if we were using the three cycles, to, three circles to witness to somebody. And if you're in the church and you don't know what the three circles are, shame on you. And if you're not in the church and you don't know what the three circles are, you can just Google them. Uh, three circles, life conversation, God. It's an easy, easy way to share your faith with somebody. It's a step-by-step -step deal and it's only three steps. Anybody can do it. Amen? Commentaries speculate that Paul uh, used, probably used texts like uh, uh, Isaiah 53 as his proof for Christ as a, the suffering Savior. And we'll read just a few verses from that, three through six. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. And these were texts that certainly the Jews that he was going to would have been very familiar with. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And finally, Paul announces. He makes a declarative statement that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, is the Messiah that Scripture points you to. And all scripture points to him. One commentary puts it in these words. This Jesus whom I preach to you and call upon you to believe in is Christ. He is the Christ, is the anointed of the Lord, is that is he that should come and you are to look for no other. For God, both by his word and his works, the two ways to which he speaks to the children of men, by the scriptures and by miracles and the gift of the spirit to make both effectual, bore witness to him. To make such a case from scripture, we need to know scripture. You think? So this makes our habits of grace, such as time in the word and time in prayer and time with other believers, iron sharpening iron, all the more important because they serve us well in our function to make disciples. So Paul makes his announcement, this declaration that Jesus is the Christ and what happens next brings us to our next point. Rest. You're only on the hook for sharing the gospel. You're not on the hook for the results. Rest and be at peace with the fact that people will respond differently And learn to trust Jesus with whatever the result will be. Look with me again at Acts 17, verses 4 through 9. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews and not a few of the leading women. So some people responded favorably. They accepted the gospel. But some of the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Jason is believed to be uh, 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 somehow connected to uh, Saul. He's mentioned in, uh, I believe it's Romans 16, and I think again in Acts 21. Um, Seeking to bring them out of the crowd, verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city of authority, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. Only if that could be our testimony as we share the gospel. They've turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received him. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security uh, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Paul makes his appeal. Some are persuaded. And some form a jealous mob, attack the house he's staying at, drag them before the authorities, make outrageous, outrageous claims about them trying to overthrow the government and almost has them thrown in jail, but they were able to bond out. It's a typical day for sharing your faith, right? That's happened to you at least once, I know. Everybody wants to be Peter in chapter 2. Peter in chapter 2 preaches a sermon in 3,000 are added to the church. 
That's how you want to be when you go out and you share your faith. You want people to respond in overwhelming numbers and open up their hearts and cry out like the Philippian jailer and say, what must I do to be saved? Right? That's what we want. Nobody wants to be Stephen in Acts chapter 7 where he preaches and is stoned to death. Both powerful sermons, both moved and, and preached under the, the, the direction and power of the Spirit, vastly different results. Fact remains that there will always be different results, different responses from people when we share the gospel. Consider the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, where the Lord says, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled overfoot, underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and it, as it grew up, it withered away because they had no moisture. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew up and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. There will always be varying responses to the gospel. And no teacher is exempt. So here Paul, champion of the faith, uh, I, I, I listened to one message earlier in the week, and they were calling him a, a prince. I didn't too much like that, but he's definitely a champion in the faith. But consider Jesus in the sixth chapter of John's gospel following the feeding of the 5,000. There's this discourse regarding bread. Jesus tells them that it wasn't Moses who gave their father's bread from, from heaven, but my father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he that comes down from heaven and gives life to all. The people still yearning and, 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 and excited about the fact that they just, he just fed 5,000. They say, uh, uh, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus, the scripture says, knowing their hearts and looking to settle the matter, eventually he responds to their longing and lusting for physical bread by saying, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This is what got him. The bread that I give, that I will give for life, for the life of the world, is my flesh. This leads to a great falling away in verse 66. And in verse 67, Jesus turns to the 12 and says, Do you want to go as way? Do you want to go away as well? So Jesus taught. 5,000 walked away and 12 remained. Why should we expect anything different? We're not called to results, we are called to witness. Whether you share the gospel and people rejoice, or whether you share the gospel and people reject, trust God with the results. Learning to rest in Jesus and to trust God with the results has a twofold purpose. One, we don't know what God, uh, what his purpose or plan is for the people or person that we're witnessing to. 
You know, one thing Pastor Brian says all the time, God is doing a million things that we have no knowledge of. We don't know how he may be working in their hearts, whether it's through their acceptance or whether it's through their rejection. We have to be willing to let God be God and not try to hold ourselves for someone else's salvation. The responsibility of the sower, that's you, that's me, is to sow. The second part of resting and trusting God includes preaching to ourselves. Reminding ourselves that the merit by which we stand before God or speak on behalf of God is not performance-based. It's all grace. Scripture says, by grace we are saved, not by works, lest any man should boast. It's all grace. So we don't have to go out feeling that we have to somehow be good enough to share. God is working. Let God work. And finally, repeat. In verse 10 of Acts chapter 17, after they bond out, Scripture says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, surely after the imprisonment that they suffered in Philippi and after the mob that they just experienced in Thessalonica, when they get to Berea, it's respite time, right? It's time to you know, drink some mojitos and kick back and set our feet up. That's a drink, right? Mojito. It's time to recover and say, man, you know, Macedonia is rough. We need to get back to Antioch, hang out with the brothers. Nope. They reach, teach, rest, repeat. For them, rejection in Thessalonica wasn't an end to their mission. It was simply the beginning of the next assignment. And so again in Berea, they share the gospel. And again in Berea, they are rejected. And again, they don't hang up their, their, their hat. They go on to Athens. They go on to the next assignment. So again, they go where the people are. Again, they opened up the scriptures. Again, some believed and some did not. Again, in the face of rejection, they don't choose to quit. They simply go to the next assignment. You're going to get various responses. You're going to get rejected. Hopefully, you don't get a mob. Hopefully, you don't get stoned. But some are. In other parts of the world, we do have people who are losing their lives for sharing the gospel, and we can do it freely, family. Why not go? Church life was never meant to be a life of comfort or convenience. Church life is a life of self-denial, sacrifice, and service. Hear these words in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and of the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The call is to come and die. 
The call is to lay down your life for the brethren. The call is to cry out on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. We don't quit at success. We don't quit at failure. We quit when the course is finished. I'm reminded of of stories the family shared about Pastor Crawford, uh, Brian's dad. Man was terminally ill, terminally ill in the hospital. And if you've stayed in the hospital overnight, you know, through the night people come in and they do little things. And people would come in to check vitals and whatnot. And again, the man's terminally ill laying in the bed. And what does he do? He witnesses. He witnesses. But that was his life. That was his life. That's how he lived. It didn't matter where you, where you met him. It didn't matter where you were. If you were at a restaurant, you heard the gospel. If you were on the basketball court, you heard the gospel. If you were at the hair shop, you heard the gospel. If you came to the house or the church, you certainly heard the gospel. Meeting that 14-year-old goofy Brian Crawford was the best thing that ever happened to me. Best thing that ever happened to me. Because he took me home. Took me home to his house. And God used that family to disciple me. His dad became my dad. Mom became my mom. We ate lots of tacos, lots of bacon and other things. We took trips. His sister became my sister. They allowed God to use everything they had and everything that was connected them to pour into the lives of those around them. Everything. And many are saved and serving God today because of their labors. What are you allowing God to use today? Whose space are you invading? Who are you allowing to invade your space? And how are you impacting others with the gospel? Are you making disciples? So where do we go from here? Reach, teach, rest, repeat. Reach out. Go where the people are. Open your heart. Open your schedule. Make time for people. Be intentional, not just in founding and fostering relationships, but nurturing them. Discipleship is life on life. I practically live with these folks my senior year. And I asked mom not too long ago, I said, did you know Back in the day, because if you were in the Crawford house about 9 o'clock, you weren't going home. It was too late for you to be on the road. She'd say, call home and let them know you'll be back tomorrow. I would stay almost every day just because I knew she wouldn't let me go home. So I'd go home the next day after school, get a change of clothes, and go back to the house. I'm sorry, Mom. But discipleship is life on life. And if we are not allowing people in our life to be present, how does discipleship happen? Or if we're not present in other people's lives, how does discipleship happen? Teach. Explain the scriptures. Read your Bible and share what you're reading. Share what your thoughts are on what you're reading. Share how the the, the word of the Lord 
is shaping or has shaped your life. And again, you don't have to feel like you have to be polished. I know we all come in Sunday and Sunday out. We eat Crawford, tear it up. And if you're like me, it's hard to stay in that pew sometimes because you just want to get up and shout. But you don't have to feel like you got to be there before you share the gospel with somebody. Amen? We're just looking to be obedient. So there's no pressure. There's no pressure because we are resting in Jesus. We know some will receive and we know some won't. There are no points for performance, and we're not responsible for the results. One souls, one waters, God gives growth. But we are responsible for answering the call to make disciples. Acts 1 and 8, but you will be my witnesses. We are responsible for answering that call. Lastly, repeat the process. This is church life. Not coming, sitting in a service, and leaving, and there's no more talk of the gospel, no more talk of Jesus, no more prayer, no more Bible reading until we get back the next Sunday. It is life. It is your Sunday. It is your Monday. It is your Tuesday. There's an old song that my son hates. It says, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Y'all heard that song? Yeah. It's every day. It's every day. I think that song might be as old as me, if not older. Yeah. But church life is every day. So wherever you go and whoever you find yourself with, you should be looking for ways to leave. Again, I love my pastor. God has gifted him. We should be looking for ways to leave gospel breadcrumbs. Amen. Pointing people intentionally to Christ. And that's church life. Amen. Let us pray.